Tonight is Chof Vov Iyar, the 26th day of Iyar. And you may ask me what the significance of this day is. Well, tonight is the 41st day of the Omer. The significance of tonight is that it is the Yorzeit, the anniversary of the death of Rav Moshe Chaim from Chal. Tonight is his Yorzeit, and as such, I would like to dedicate this year in his memory. And therefore, I would like to say some ideas concerning his life, some appropriate ideas concerning the life of the Ramchal, and as such, I am digressing from the Inyanum, which I had previously began, and I'm going to, then after this is over, I'm going to continue those ideas or topics which I was holding in the middle of, okay? Now, Chov of Iyon is the Yod site, the, the anniversary, the death, of course, of Ramchal, which occurred in 1746. Ramchal lived from 17, of, uh, he was born in 1706, and he died in 1746, and he lived 40 years. And it's incredible, of course, how a man should accomplish so much in the 40 years that he lived. Now, in order to understand, or rather, in order to, to uh, appreciate the Ramchal's life, I'm going to tie it into Lagbo Imer, which is the anniversary death, the Yod site, of Rab Shimon by Yehoi. And if we understand one, we will understand the other. This is what I'm going to do. Okay? So therefore, I'm going to start this year by asking a question. And that is that we, there's a tremendous celebration that takes place on the anniversary death of Rab Shimon by Yehoi, the Rajbi, as his acronym is known. Especially, this simple takes place in all Jewish communities throughout the world, especially in Eretz Israel. And the question is, there are, there are postcards that say that one is not allowed to celebrate Lag Ba'imah, the Yod site of Rabbi Shimon, because the idea is that how can you celebrate a Simcha, how can you make a, uh, you know, festivities on Lag Ba'imah, which is the Yod site of the Rajbi, are we happy that the Rabbi Shimon died? However, of course, there are many Peskim and Rabbi Chaim Vital brings from the Ari that there's a minig from many, many years. We see already how, back, how far back the minig goes that they have been going to Meron on the Lag Boimah, the outside of Rabbi Shimon for many years. Therefore, but we still have to understand how in the world can you make a Simcha, a festive mood on the day of Rabbi Shimon's death. We, Chas V'Shom, are certainly not celebrating his death because the world witnessed a profound loss, obviously, at his death. But the truth of the matter is, if you think about it, is that on the contrary, the, if you want to celebrate a man's life, the true celebration of a man's life is only at his death. It's only at his side. That's when you really can celebrate a man's life. And you know why? Because there are basically two reasons. There are two reasons why it is appropriate to celebrate a man's life at his death, his anniversary date, and not during his life when these achievements are realized, when the person actually accomplishes these tasks, as when a person actually gives these contributions to mankind. And yet, the first reason is that only at a person's death do we realize the extent of the achievements the totality of the contributions of the man because obviously he's lived out his entire life so we can see the greatness of the man to what extent his teaching have pervaded 
you know, uh, uh, Judaism, and more important, to what extent has Ibn Khadish, what has his, what has his contributions been toward Judaism? Toward Judaism. So therefore, the first reason is that only at a, a tzaddik's death can we appreciate the extent of the achievements, the totality of those contributions. This is the first reason. The second reason is that in says in Pirkei Ovis, Do not believe in yourself until the day of your death. Don't think that because you're righteous that you may always become, always be righteous. That the Yitzhahara has no chance to win over you. It's wrong. Because any person can change his ways and become a Russia before he dies. It's possible for anybody. In fact, they relate that Yechun and Kohen Gadol, Pirkei Ovis, they relate that Yechun Kohen Gadol, he was a high priest, a Kohen Gadol for 80 years. Could you imagine how wrong? And in the end, he became a Tzdoiki. He became a Sadducee, which is a they believe in Torah Shabbat, but not Torah Shabbat Peh. Here's a man who was Yechun and Kohen Gadol, 80 years the man served as the high priest, one of the most, the highest positions in spiritual leadership of Christ's world. Because you can imagine what this man had seen, and he became a tzdoiki after 80 years. So therefore you certainly can say, Al-Tam you cannot believe in yourself, you have to make sure that you always fight the Yitzhahara. And of course there's another incident, of course, of Acher, Rabbi Elisha ben Abuya who was the Rebbe of Ramer, he also became a Min. He became, well, he became a Min, he became a, 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 a not because He was the Rebbe of Ramer, and to show you how great Acher was, the, the, the uh, Chazal tell us in the Gemara in Erevin that in the generation of Ramer, that his generation did not fully comprehend the depth of his wisdom. That the Chazal, the other Tanoim who lived at his time, did not fully comprehend the incredible mind of Rameer. That's how great he was. And Chazal relate that after his Rebbe, who they called Acher, after he became a Min, an Apikurs, he was going on a donkey and riding, and Rameer on Shabbos this was. And Rameer was following him on Shabbos, and you're not allowed to ride a donkey on Shabbos. And until they came to 2,000 Amas, where Rameer said, I cannot go further than here because this is the Tchum, this is the boundary that you can go on Shabbos uh, until when you go outside of a city. So when he came back, they said, How could you learn from Acher? You're learning to Rameer, who's so great, is learning Torah from Acher. And Acher is riding on a donkey in Shabbos, and he also went past the boundaries, the Tchum. That boundary which you permitted, which you're not permitted to go on Shabbos. So you can imagine how great Achir was that Ramea would be willing even to jeopardize his own Ruchnius in order to learn from Achir. And of course, Chazal asked him, How could you do that? So he said, I take learning from Rabbi, but not from, I don't learn from his acts. This is what he said. Apparently, Ramea was confident that he wouldn't be influenced by Achir. But in any case, that's how great Achir was. And it shows you how great. Acher was because Acher told Rameer that now is the Tchum Shabbos, you must go back. He's the one who reminded Rameer. So the incredible profundity, I remember this from a Rebbe I once had many years ago, that it shows you the brilliance of Rameer, excuse me, of Acher, why? Because could you imagine that Acher was having this discussion with Rameer, must have been incredibly profound ideas. And Acher was keeping tabs of the Amas as they was going. So you can imagine he was able to keep his mind on the amount of Amas 
that he was going as he was leaving the city. And he said to Ramea, go back, because you are not allowed to go further. Me, Mele, he's a man, it's one thing. But Ramea, he knew, of course, Ramea is from, you go back. So you can imagine the wisdom of Acher, the incredible mind of Acher, that he's able to engage in a discussion with Ramea, who his, Ramea's generation didn't understand Ramea, and still keep tabs of the amount of Amos, feet, that you're not allowed to go after Tchum uh, in terms of Shabbos. In any case, so Acher became a min. So therefore you see the greatness of Acher. So therefore, you cannot believe in yourself until the day you die. So therefore, you cannot celebrate the life of a tzaddik during his lifetime because maybe he'll have charata. Maybe he'll become a min. So what are you celebrating? Therefore, at his death, you know, not even though the, not only the totality and the extent of his achievements, but you also know the certainty of his righteousness and his dedication. Therefore, the simcha that we make for, of course, for a tzaddik at his death is because at that time we can best do that celebration. Therefore, we celebrate the man's life at his death for those two reasons. Now, to carry the idea further, therefore, the celebration of Rabbi Shimon Bayechori. In other words, to celebrate his contributions to Judaism, this is what we are doing on his yacht side, because we're celebrating the man's life. And that is what Lagbo Imra is really all about. To celebrate the contributions that Rav Shimon Bayechoi gave to the world. Now, you may ask me, what is the contributions Rav Shimon gave? And the answer is that if you want to know the contributions a man gave in his life, then look at the day of his death. Because the day of his death is somehow going to clue you in to exactly what he did. Now, you know probably that there are seven weeks in Sphira, right? From the second day of Pesach until Shavuos, there are seven weeks. And each week is divided or represents one Sphira. And there are, there are ten spheres, but the last seven are most pertinent. So therefore, each week represents a Sphira. The first week is Chesed, second week is Gura, third week is Tiferes. Fourth week is Netzach, fifth week is Hoid, the sixth week is Yisoid, and the seventh week is Malchus. Now, in addition, each week which has seven days also represents a Sphira in that cycle. So the first day is Chesed Sheba Chesed, the second day is Gvur Sheba Chesed, and so on. Now, if you look at the particular Sphira of Lag you will see that it is Hoid Sheba Hoid. What is Hoid? Hoid is translated as majesty, okay? It is the majesty of God because the spheres are the medes of the Rabbanishman, the attributes of God, okay? His characteristics, his personality traits, which he reveals to us. Hoid is the majesty, and majesty means the grandeur, the sublimeness of the Rabbanishman. This is what majesty is. So therefore, on that day, it's Hoid Shibahoid, the majesty of majesty. Now, what is the majesty of God? Well, since we do not see the majesty in terms of the etzim of God, the substance of God, we do not know God in terms of what He really is, so we certainly don't see the grandeur of God in terms of His true being, we therefore see the grandeur of God in terms of His acts, His pu'ulois. We look at His acts and we realize the incredible grandeur, the majesty of the Rebbe right? What is the totality of all His acts, the totality of all creation? What is the blueprint or the design? The Torah. The Torah, which is the acts of God in its totality, it is the blueprint or design of the Bria, is the Hoid of the Rabbanishlam. 
So therefore we now know what the Hoid is. That Hoid, which is majesty, refers of course to the grandeur of God, which what we can view in terms of that grandeur means the terror, which is a totality of his acts, the totality of all his pulus, which is all creation. Now, however, but the sphera in Lad Ba'ema is not Hoid, it's Hoid Shibahoid, which means the majesty of the majesty. And in other words, there's the majesty of God, which is a terror, and there's the quintessential majesty, the essential majesty of the general majesty. What is, what is that aspect of terror, which is the true majesty of the majesty of the terror in general? And the answer to that is the primius atura, the inner workings of the terror, and that is Kabbalah. Kabbalah is the majesty of the majesty because the Pneumia Satira, okay, is the inner depths, the internal design, that true structure which determines the outer design, which is the terror. Therefore, Rav Shimon, his contributions are the Kabbalah, and that is Hoyit Sheba The majesty of his majesty is the Kabbalah. The Pneumia the mystical ideas, the structure, the true internal structure of the Torah, that is the Hoid, the majesty of the outer Torah, which is Sheba That is the contributions of Rav Shimon. And of course, the Kabbalah by Rav Shimon, of course, is basically reflected, of course, in his magnum opus, the Zoya. And the Zoya is the Hoid Sheba So incredibly enough, Rav Shimon died in the exact day which would beautifully demonstrate his contributions. Hoid Sheba the majesty of majesty, which is the Pneumia Satera, which is the Kabbalah. And of course, the Kabbalah is the Esuid, the foundation of the Bria, because it's the internal workings of everything. Interestingly enough, we find that there's a forerunner to Lag that the Pneumia Satera was revealed before the Rajbi came, but it was revealed, unfortunately, in a different way. It says in Parshas Noyach, it says, Bishnas Sheish Meyoyis Shono Lechaye Noyach, in the 600th year of the life of Noyach, Bachoydesh Hashemi, in the second month, Bishiva Osu Yim Lachoydesh, in the 17th day of that month, Bayim Hazeh, in the daytime, not the nighttime, in the daytime, what happened? Nifku Kol Mayonis Tohoim, the fountains of the great Rabba. Tahim Rabbah, the fountains of the great deep were broken open, and the water, of course, poured forth. Va'arubis Hashemayim, and the openings, the windows of heaven, Niftochu, were open. This obviously is referring to the marble, the flood. The flood happened in the 17th day of the second month, and Rabbi Yeshua says that the, that the second month is Iyo, because we count from Nisim. And if that is the case, and the 17th day is the 32nd day of the Oymah. Now, since the flood began not in, at night time, so therefore the 32nd day of the Oymah would have been the entire day of the first day of the flood. It began in the daytime. So therefore the first day ended in the, th- in the 33rd day of the Oymah, Lagba Oymah. So we see that the flood began Lagba Oymah. The first day ended in Lagba Oymah which is the 18th day of Eeyore, right? 18th day of Eeyore is always like Bo'ema. So therefore we see that 
the flood, the Mabal, in the time of Noach, began on the 17th, and the entire first day is, of course, into the 18th day. So therefore we can say that the first day of the flood ended in the 18th day of Eo, which is Lag Boimer. Now, you may ask me, well, what was the relevance of the flood to Rab Shimon Bar death? Or, rather, what is the relevance of the flood to the contributions of Rab Shimon, which is Kabbalah, which is a Pnimiya Satura? Then, if you recall, I had said last year, in the Shurim, about what that Zoya meant, that the Zoya says that from here we learn that in the 600th year of the Elif Hashishi, of the 6,000th year, there will be a tremendous Hispashtus Chochmah, a tremendous spreading of incredible knowledge. This is what the Zoya says. Now, what is that knowledge? That is the beginnings of the Orishan. Okay? The Orishan started in a tremendous way in the year 1840, which is 5,600. That's the 600th year in the beginning of the 6,000th year, right? Mm -hmm. That's 5,600, which corresponds to 1840, which of course incredibly corresponds to the entire industrial revolution, the entire ideas of, uh, the of technology. That was the beginning of the technological revolution and scientific rev revolution and so on, for those who are acquainted with history. Now, so therefore, the Zoya learns out from the ideas of Noach that that is exactly when you'll have the the beginnings of the Orishim. And of course, it really started in the year 1240, which is 5,000. But 5,000 and onwards, it was very slow. Kimo, Kimo, which means very slow. And it burst forth in the year of 1840, which is 600 years later. And for the full explanation, of course, I had spoken about the entire idea of the significance of the Zoya in a previous year in terms of the method of the Mashiach. Now, uh, <coughs> now, this happened, of course, on Yud Zion in the 17th day of uh, Eeyore, of course, which went into the 18th day of Eeyore. This is exactly when it happened, which is like Ba'imah. Which means that on the 18th day, the waters of the marvel is metaphorically for the Chokhmah of Panimi Satira. Because if you look at water, water is the metaphor which is, stands for Tira. Water. Whenever the Tira is Nimshul the Mayim, the Tira is compared to water. And the metaphor of Tira, of course, is water. So therefore, the waters of the Mehamabal metaphorically re re represent this tremendous spreading or proliferation of Chokhmah, which of course inundated mankind at that time. But what it indicates is that in the year 1840 there will be a Mabal, but at that time the Mabal won't be water, it will be the Chokhmah itself. And what really was supposed to happen is that in the time of Noyach, okay, in the, in the 600th year of his life, there was supposed to be the Orishan, the dissension of the Orishan. However, mankind was not fit for that. So therefore, it descended. But since mankind was not royal for the spiritual manifestation of that or, which is the Pneumis Atera, so therefore, it became the physical manifestation, which means water. And man drowned in that water. Because when the, apparently at that time, either you live by that light, that Pneumis, that Chokhmah, or you die by that light. 
And since man was not royal, so if he died by that light, because the waters are the physical manifestations of the awe that came down, that tremendous ispashtas of Chokhmah. This is basically the idea. But in any case, so we see that Lad Bo'imra is when the marble started. And what was the marble represent? The Pnimi Satira, that oration which in truth took place in 1840. And who died on Lad Bo'imra? Rab Shimon. So he died again on a day which indicates his contributions. The first idea is Hoid Shibahoid, that's his contribution. And the second idea is that he, de- he died on a day where the tremendous Hispatius of Kedusha was supposed to take place, namely at the marble. And therefore, that again indicates the, uh, the contribution of Rab Shimon by Yehoi. Now, therefore, we see that the contributions of Rab Shimon by Yehoi, which we are celebrating at his death, is indicated by Hoyichi Bahoid, which is the Pnimio Isatira, that's the Yesoide foundation, and it's also indicated that the flood, which represents truly that ore, that Pnimio Isatira, also occurred in that day of Yudches Iyo. Now, let us now go to Ramoshi Chaimatsatai. If it is true that we celebrate a person's life at his death, then clearly we are doing the same thing with Ramchal, that we are now going to celebrate Ramchal's life, his achievements and contributions, also at his death. And since his Yotzah is tonight, Chovav Yah, it is appropriate, of course, to look at what is the Sphira by Rabbi Moshe Chaim because that should also tell us what his contributions and his achievements were, just like it told us what the contributions and achievements of Rabbi Shimon Bayechoi. And if you will look at tonight, in your Sidurim, you will see that the sphere of tonight is Yesoid Shabi Yesoid. See that the contributions of the Ramchal, the day itself is Magala, what the contributions of the Ramchal. That the Ramchal was the Yesoid, the, the Pneumius of the Pneumius. What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of the Ramchal? It means that Hoid is the Yesoid, because the majesty of majesty is really the Pneumius, that the Yesoid. But he was the Yesuid Shabi Yesuid. What does that mean? In other words, that what the Ramchal revealed was the Pneumius of Kabbalah itself. The Pneumius of the Hoid Shabahoid, the Pneumius of the Yesuid, the Pneumius of Kabbalah. It's all the same thing. Therefore, he died on a day with the Yesuid Shabi Yesuid. Because all this terror that I'm telling you is based on his system. The entire idea of Hasogus Yehudoi, all the Anhogus of the Rebbeinu that it determines the entire structure, is of course the system of the Ramchal. And therefore he was the one who was Megala, the fundamental principles of the Kabbalah itself, which is the fundamental principles of Torah itself. Therefore, if he has to die in, in the, those seven weeks, he must die, of course, in Yesoid Shabi Yesoid. And of course, that is exactly when the Ramchal died, he died in Yesuit Shabi Yesuit. Because that is what his contributions were. That he revealed the fundamental principles of the Kabbalah. And Kabbalah itself is the fundamental principles of the Torah. Therefore, he is the Yesuit Shabi Yesuit itself. And this Yesuit, he therefore, we see very beautifully that the day that Ramchal died, of course, the Yesuit Shabi Yesuit. Because he was involved, and of course, in revealing 
the fundamental principles of the area which itself is fundamental to the entire Torah. And not only that, but the Ramchal did not reveal those fundamental principles in a way which is metaphoric or symbolic, misholim, analogies. He revealed the nimshol, which is, of course, the interpretation of the analogies. And he revealed those fundamental principles of Kabbalah, he revealed it in a very clear and open manner. And in that way he interpreted the Kabbalah. Therefore, this we see is what the Ramchal's contributions and his achievements were. And I'd like to mention, in closing, that I heard from somebody who heard from an individual who said over in the name of Rav Meir Pramishlan, who is a, one of the big Hasidic Rebbe's. And this person, Rav Meir Pramishlan, said that the light, the ore, and the rush, the head of the Mashiach, is inferior. This is what he said. And I asked the person, what did, does Rav Meir Pramishlan say what he meant? And he didn't know if he said or not. But what I'd like to say is that this clearly indicates that the Ramchal, of course, is buried in Tferia, right next to Rabbi Akiva. And the ore, when he refers to that the light, the ore of the, of the Mashiach and the head of the Mashiach is in Tferia, he's really referring to the Ramchal of Moshe Karamatsati. Why? Because Yesuit should be Yesuit. Those principles of the Kabbalah itself is the light of the Mashiach. And that is exactly what the Ramchal was revealing. That ore, that ore, of course, refers to the Orishan that first light which was hidden and that of course is the Or Pnimi that is the hidden light of creation which is the Yesui Shiv Yesui and that is Teras Ramchal the, the uh, Terah, the knowledge, the, the ideas of the Ramchal the Giluya Ramchal, that which the Ramchal has revealed so that's what he means by the light of the the light of the Mashiach is in Tferia and that light refers to the Terah, the Giluyim, the revelations of the Ramchal and also, what he means by the head of the Mashiach is inferior. The head, of course, is the intellect. It's the instrument by which we think. He's referring to the method or the derach of the Ramchal, which is to understand all things by their internal structure. In other words, that derach of Yehud, or that derach of Tferes, which indicates beauty and harmony, integration, synthesis, that derach which always seeks to unify that derech which always seeks to unify many fundamental ideas that is in, that, that's what's referred to as the head of the Mashiach and that is also in Tferia because the derech of the Ramchal is also that which is, will be used by the Mashiach to indicate the internal structure of all creation and I, this is where I'd like to end of course the, uh, the, uh, the uh, dedication to Ramchal that we should be zeich, of course, to be able to see the Mashiach from here b'yameno. Now, we turn to the inyanim that we had left previously because I had digressed just to speak some words of Ramosh Chaimatzatay, and we can go back to the inyanim of Yaakov and Esav. We can go back to the inyanim of Yaakov and Esav, and <clears throat> we are now at the idea or the part where, as I'd mentioned previously in the last year. Well, we are trying to understand why Yitzchak did not know that Esav was a Russia. Now, I had mentioned previously that Esav should have been disqualified for one of three reasons. Either because he was a Russia, right? Or second, because he sold his Bukhara. And third, 
because the Nevoah, it said, Rav that the older son shall serve the younger son. Not only that, but Yitzchak could have known that Esav was a Russia in one of three sources. Either Rivka could have told him, Yaakov could have told him, or the Rabbani Shalom could have told him. And we find, of course, that none of these things were revealed to Yitzchak. Now, so let me deal at least why Rivka didn't tell him, and why Yaakov didn't tell him. Then, later on, I'll deal why the Rabbani Shalom didn't tell him. And of course, in the ideas of why the Rabboni Shalom didn't tell him lies among the most profound secrets in all Hashkofa. Now, in terms of Rivka didn't tell him, the question, why didn't she tell uh, Yitzchak <clears throat> when she got the prophecy from Shem that the Rav Ya'avoytzo'ir, that the older one shall serve the younger one? And the answer to that is that Rivka did not even tell him that she went to ask Shem why she was having so much pain. And the reason for that is because that the righteous women, that when Chava was cursed, that the Etz of Teldi Bonum, in pain you shall conceive children, that was only on women who were not righteous. Apparently righteous women were not included in that Gezira. Either they would have no pain or very little pain. They were not included in the Chava, the curse of Chava. So she, since she had such incredible pain, she assumed the implication was that she is not a righteous woman. So she figured, you know, she's not really, obviously, living a righteous life. So she thought that basically, probably, she's a sinner. So she was afraid to tell Avram who she could have asked for the, what was going on, because it's possible that Avram would have told Yitzhak, you better get rid of her, she is not a righteous woman. She was afraid to ask Avram. She was also afraid to tell Yitzchak her husband because maybe he also would have taken another woman because this would clearly indicate, of course, that she wasn't a righteous woman. Therefore, she never told either Avram and she never told Yitzchak of, of course, the tremendous pains and she never told them in that way and she went and said by herself, without permission, secretly, without informing Yitzchak, she went to Shem and asked him what's going on. And of course, he told her that there's nothing wrong with you it's merely a prophecy that this is the entire ideas of two inyanim, the inyan of Mashiach ben Yosef, the inyan of Mashiach ben David, going on. And of course he told her, according to the knowledge of God, that eventually Esau would lose those inyanim. Now, so therefore she of course felt very relieved that she remained at Tzadikis, she remained righteous because the pain was not due to that. It was rather due to the inyanim, those areas that were now going to uh, emanate from her. And of course, be manifested in Yaakov and Esav, two different people of Israel. But she never told Yitzchok in any case, even though she found out she was okay, because she was very modest, and it would be embarrassing for her to tell Yitzchok that she had actually done something without his knowledge. Perhaps he would have been hurt, because he was far greater Novi, prophet, than Shem. So therefore, she never told him, even though she found out that her fears were not justified. She never told Yitzchak that she had gone to somebody else, and therefore, consequently, she never wound up telling him the prophecy. Rav Now, and even though it would, be, it would have been wise for Yitzchak to have known the prophecy, but she figured that she doesn't want to tell him, because again, as I say, she was embarrassed, but she figured that Yitzchak is a far greater Novi than Shem, and he would probably know it by himself, since he's a Novi. So therefore, she never told Yitzhak at all about the pains, about the fact that she went to Shem, 
even about her fears that she wasn't righteous. And therefore, of course, she never told them about Rav Yavoy Tzoyer. So therefore, Yitzchak never knew of that prophecy, and God didn't tell him either. So what she thought that Yitzchak would be able to figure out was not true, because the Russian purposely kept it from her, him. Now, the Ramban says this, in order to explain the ideas of why Rivko, or rather why Yitzchak, of course, didn't know the information. Now, <clears throat> in addition, so then, therefore we understand that why Yitzchok never knew what happened at the birth of Yaakov and Esav. Why Rivka never told Yitzchok about the pain because of her fears that she's not a tzaddikis. And therefore the conclusion of Rav Yavitzoria because she didn't want to embarrass him, embarrass herself, that she did something without the knowledge of her husband and she acted secretly. Now, the next question is, okay, the brochs were given to Esav and Yaakov at 63 years old. Yaakov and Esau were 63 years old when Yitzchak gave them the brachas. So the question is, why didn't Rivko or Yaakov tell Yitzchak that A, either he was a murdered Russia, or B, Yaakov, this is what Rivka could have told Yitzchak, and Yaakov could have told uh, Yitzchak that he sold his Bechera. He doesn't deserve this. And the answer to that is that what probably would have happened, and this is what both Rivka and Yaakov thought, is that if they had told him either that Esau was a Russia or that Yitzchak sold, and, and Yaakov could have told him, because apparently Yaakov never told Rivka either about that, about the fact that Esau sold his Bechura. But if Yaakov would have told either to Yitzchak either that Esau was a Russia or that Esau sold his Bechura to him, and if Rivka would have told Yitzchak that she that Yisuf was a Russia, Yitzchak still would not have blessed Yaakov, because they were afraid, each in their own way, that Yitzchak loved Yisuf so much that at most he would say, "Okay, I cannot bless you because Yisuf, because the blessings are not his, but I will not bless you either. Let the Rabbanishlam bless you, because I can't do that." In other words, they were afraid that either Yitzchak would not bless Yaakov at all because he loved Esau so much and he would be terribly hurt or it would be a tragedy for him to realize that the Indian of Ben Yosef was lost by Esau and he loved Esau so much by Yehav, Yitzchak is Esau Kitzai Bukiv, as I related last week so therefore they were afraid that either Yitzchak would not give the brachas at all to Yaakov and say let the Rebunishlam give the brachas to Yaakov or even if Yitzhak perhaps had given it, it would have been faint-hearted. It wouldn't have been with a complete mind and intention. Because it would have been, it would have, let's say, half-hearted. Perhaps even not hearted at all. So therefore, in any case, Yaakov never told Yitzhak either of the fact that Esau was a Russia or about the fact that he sold his Bukhara because he figured he wouldn't have gotten the brachas anyway. And the same ideas with Rivka. Rivka never told him about the prophecy in the beginning, as I explained before. And she also never told him about the idea that Esau was a Russia, because she would have figured she figured that he would not have given at all the brachos to Yaakov, or even if he had, it would have been tremendously half-hearted. Now, this explains why Yaakov, and by the way, the Ramban says this also. Now, this explains why Rivka and Yaakov said nothing to Yitzchak either about Esau's riches, about the sale, the Bechera, or about the prophecy. But the question is, what about the Rabbani Shlom? The Rabbani Shlom could have told Yitzchak about the riches of Esau, and he could have commanded him not to bless Esau, but to bless Yaakov. 
So the profound question is, why was the Rabbanu so reticent, so hesitant to say anything to Yitzchak? And not only that, but we see clearly that he set Yitzchak up to bless Yaakov without being aware that Yaakov was the one who was receiving the blessing, as I had mentioned, from the Midrash Tanchuma and from the Zoya. And uh, this is the question that we now have to answer. Now, in order to basically answer the question, we first have to understand certain fundamental concepts. And uh, they themselves really form certain significant ideas. And these ideas, these concepts will actually serve as some kind of prefatory remarks or some kind of introduction or preface to the ideas itself which will answer the question which has been asked. And that is, of course, why is it that Yaakov, when he came to take the brochus by Yitzchok, why is it that he had to act through deceit, through a deceitful ruse? This is what, uh, of course, we are now going to try to answer. And uh, as I said, I'm going to give certain ideas which are, will serve as a preface, and then this will enable everybody to clearly understand what was going on in this particular incident. Now, it is important to know, and I have mentioned this previously, that all individual Jews, every individual, every person, no matter who they are, has been designated a specific area to misaken, to correct. No two areas are the same. And uh, perhaps that's why Chazal tell us that just like no people, no person, no man has the exact same face as every other man. Everybody differs in their parts of their face. Therefore, they also differ in their mind, in their ways of thinking and so on. The reason for that is that everybody has a different face. Everybody looks at the Bria differently, which means that everybody's conditions are differently because everybody has a different area in the universe to correct or fix. That's why their faces are different, which means that their temperaments are different and their intelligences, intelligences are different and so on. Because that indicates that conditions upon which they live, they are different. And the reason why everything is different, of course, is because every person has a specific different area which he has to massacre. Therefore, the conditions in which he lives is also different. Now, in any case, we know that the situation of the Bria, of the universe, the way it was created is Hesti Yehudoi, which means that there is a concealment of the oneness of God. And we also know that there are now two kinds of concealments. One is a chasan, which is the original amount of concealment of the oneness of God that God made in order to en enable Adam, Adam, the first man, to have a test. And the second area of concealment of the Rabbani Shlom, the second Hesti Yehudoi, which is now the, the situation, is Kilkel, which of course is the amount of concealment of God that was brought about through the sin of Chet of Odom Horishan, the first man. And these ideas, of course, I had explained previously many times over. Now, since the general situation of the universe is Hesti Yehudoi, both in terms of its deficiency, Chesarn, or Kilkel damage, Therefore, areas in this Hesti Yehudoi have been designated to specific individuals. Therefore, each individual Jew has a specific area 
that they are in and they are given conditions in order to be able to do this task each Jew has a specific area that he has to reveal the oneness of God in his particular life circumstances now it basically divides itself into two different ideas and actually one can get a feel of if he is in the union of Ben Yosef or if he is in the union of Ben David if he is in the union of being Mesach in the Kilkul if he has to correct the Kilkul the damage that was done to the Bria as a result of Adam's Orishan's Chet or if he is in the union of Chesarn the original deficiency not as a result of Adam's Orishan's Chet a person can get a general feel of which direction he is in and he does that by seeing which two major divisions he falls under in other words which two which of two different kinds of conditions does he have now some Jews have a tremendous battle with Taiva. They have tremendous what's called psychological force libidinal drives. Tremendous Taivas. And it manifests itself not only in terms of Zemo or sex, but also many other areas. A tremendous Taiva for power, for sensuality in general, a gourmet, a person who can be very sensuous and so on. These kind of people who have tremendous battles with that Taiva they are in effect, of course, battling the Yetzirah, the Sitra Akhra, and their area is basically to Mesak and the Kilkul, to correct the damage in the Bria, which was created by Odom Rishon. Therefore, they have, of course, that tremendous Taivas, drives, and they are generally in that area. Now, there are some Jews, however, who don't seem at all to possess very strong libidinal drives. Now, the question then is, what is their area? What are they supposed to be doing? The answer to that is that their area is different than the other Jews who are into a different kind of area or division. The division that they fall under is not the division of trying to fix Kilkul, but rather to fix Hassan, which means that they have tremendous battle with the pursuit of truth. In other words, to what extent do they want to conceal the truth? Do they want to hide from the truth? They don't want to look at it. And they have to fight themselves in not wanting to conceal this truth. And also, to what extent will they advance in the acquisition of truth? How energetic are they? How much energies will they give? How much will they sacrifice in order to pursue the truth? In other words, the rate of advancement in terms of the acquisition of truth. This is their battlefront. That's their battleground. Therefore, they, of course, are concerned not with the area of Kilkul, but with the area of Hassan, which is, as I had mentioned previously, is the task is to spread holiness. And spreading holiness means pursuing truth and to promote it to others. Therefore, these individuals are usually involved in the battle of Gaiva, arrogance. That's usually their kind of pitfall. And uh, in that way, they fight the Sitra Akhro, the Eight Sahara. And of course, they're involved in the area of the Tikkun of Hassan. In fact, many times you'll see, interestingly enough, that uh, the, one of the major difficulties among yeshiva students is not Taiva. I'm not saying it doesn't exist by them. But one of the major areas, many times you'll see uh, yeshiva students who are not about Taiva. They, they don't have very strong libidinal drives, drives for Taiva, for pleasure. 
But you see that many times they fall into the area of gaiva, of arrogance. And this is what they seem to be contending most with, is the idea of gaiva. That's what they call the chet of, uh, of yeshiva of, of, of life, b'nei Torah. But in any case, Jews, a person can figure out in which area he falls by merely looking at his disposition. To see if he, if he is strongly involved in the battle of taiva, or if he's not involved in the battle of taiva, he doesn't have that kind of a constitution, where he's very, where he's very pleasure-driven and oriented, but rather, if he finds relative tranquility in the area of taiva, then his job is in the area of the pursuit of truth. How much is he pursuing truth? How much is he, of course, concealing truth? And how rapid is he in acquiring this truth? How much self-sacrifice will he do in order to find out what is the real path that a person should learn? And if a person believes and believes in the Rabbani Shalom and believes in Torah, how much time does he devote to learning Torah, pursuing mitzvahs, and so on? In other words, it's the positive end. In other words, the first one who is involved in battling Tivus is involved with getting rid of the Sahara. And the second individual, he is involved with pursuing truth in, in, in terms of trying to spread as much holiness in himself and to trying to promote it to others. Now, to go further. So therefore, this is generally the two areas that Jews fall under, and they conform very nicely with the entire tafkidim or tasks of the two Mishichen. Okay, the idea of Mishich ben David, of course, is to correct the son, and therefore the disposition of that personality will be people who do not have strong tithes, but who are involved with the pursuit of truth. And the idea of ben Yosef, of course, involves the constitution of people involved in that union. Of course, is to Masak and Chasan, and they are involved with tremendous drives that they have, and they have to battle the Eight Sahara in that particular battle zone. And as a result, of course, they have to Masak the Kilko. We see, therefore, that there are different, every Jew is assigned a specific area that he has to contend with and he has to correct. And you may ask, well, what does the area depend on that he has to involve himself in? And the answer to that is it depends on his neshama, on his shirish neshama, on what kind of soul that this individual has. That determines the particular battlefront that this individual is assigned to. Now, you may ask now, well, what determines what shirish a person, shirish neshama person is given? And the answer to that is it is unknown. Only God, only the Rebbeinu knows why this particular individual has this particular Shirish Neshama only root only he knows why this individual has this kind of a root the soul's root okay no nobody else knows and this knowledge is hidden from men and uh, it probably will never be revealed these are among the things which one cannot think about why a person has this uh, particular soul in the first place but in any case we do know that if a person does have this particular soul, this kind of neshama, that determines the constitution he has, which of course immediately means that is a particular battle area that he has to fight. Either he's involved in the area of the Tikkun of Kilku, which is the area of Ben Yosef, or he's involved in the area of Hassan, which is the area of Ben David. And both these areas, of course, comprise the area of areas of the situation of the concealment of the oneness of God throughout creation. Now, we begin to see that some 
that, uh, that each Jew has an area where they have to correct. Now, it is important to know that some Jews have a small amount that they have to correct. Small areas in this hesti yechudoi, in this concealment of the oneness of God in many, many different uh, situations in the world, that some Jews have a small area to correct. Some Jews have tremendously large areas that they have to correct. And the amount that a Jew can destroy or damage depends on the amount he can correct. In other words, certain Jews can massacre or correct large areas, therefore they can damage large areas automatically because the amount you can correct, that's the exact amount you can also damage. Notice that area is under your control. Some, whereas other Jews, they can massacre only small areas, therefore they can only damage small areas. So therefore we see that Jews are designated to specific uh, areas to battle in, and that uh, some Jews are involved in large battles because they can correct large areas and therefore if they choose the wrong way they can destroy large areas. And some Jews can only correct small areas and if they choose wrongly of course they only damage small areas. And why each Jew has been given this depends on the Shurish Neshama and why he has that Shurish Neshama in the first place is known only by the Rabbani Shalom. Now, to go further, we begin to realize that there are great neshamas and there are lesser neshamas based on the amount of tikkun kilku potential of the Jew. In other words, the amount that this Jew can massacre or correct and the amount that this Jew can damage if he chooses the wrong path determines if he's a great neshama or less of a neshama. And we begin to see that there are neshamas, of course, which can correct awesome amounts in the Ibriya, in the universe. And therefore, if they go on the wrong path, they can damage tremendous amounts. And there are Jews, of course, that can do the reverse. And they, of course, are less nishamas. Now, what kind of examples are there of great nishamas? Well, you begin to see that great nishamas are individuals like Moshe Rabbeinu, the two Meshichen, the Shnei Meshichen, other Tzaddikim, the Nevi'im, Tanoim Amoroim, and so on. Now, you may ask a question, wait a minute, it doesn't sound like it's fair. You mean to tell me God gives a person a certain kind of neshama and that neshama determines to what extent he can massacre and correct the universe or damage the universe. In other words, the amount is not determined by the individual but by God depending on what kind of neshama he has. Well, that doesn't sound very fair. Somebody who has a very large area he can massacre and it sounds like he can get a much, he can get a much greater portion in the future world, much greater chilek in Olam Haba. Somebody who has less of a portion to Masakin, he sounds like, well, he can't earn too much in Olam Haba. So it sounds like there's an inequality. And the answer to that is there is no inequality. Why? Because, and here's a very fundamental principle, a Jew's status in the future world, in Olam Haba, depends not at all on the assigned task. In other words, if it's a large area or a small area. It depends on the amount or the percentage that he truly was massacring in his area. That's all it depends on. In other words, that the assigned task, whether it be a great task or a small task, a great area or, or a small area, is not what gets a Jew or Ilim Habbo at all. It's not, you know, it's 
the only thing that a Jew is judged on, and he, ju- and he is judged on nothing else, in other words, nothing else matters, is to what extent did he work on the area which was assigned to him. For instance, let's say a person has a small area to Masakim, and he worked on it very difficult when he was given the life conditions to bring out that battle and so on, and he did his job 80% of what he could have done. <clears throat> and let's assume you have a great neshama that comes down, and he has a far larger area he can massacre, but he only he only is massacre uh, 50%. Then the Jew with the small neshama is greater in Elam Habo than the Jew with the larger neshama. Okay? So therefore we see that there is no inequality. In other words, in terms of Elam Habo, the amount you correct, or the amount of your job that you get done, relatively to the total amount you could have gotten done, is what is considered. Therefore, it is very possible, of course, to be greater than somebody who has a far greater neshama if you are massacring what you have to massacre, which then shows us that never judge any man you see. Because if you look at a man, and that's what really comes out, if you look at an individual who is not such a fromayid, you don't know what his area is. He may have an area which is small, which is much smaller than you, but in relationship to his area, all he had to do was do four mitzvahs, and that's it. You know, it's for instance, you take Jews who are who are born among Jewish parents, and they live, let's say, in Kalamazoo or some real foreign place, and the guy never heard of a Jew, and then he, he grows up for 20 years in this incredible hester, right? Yeah. And he goes to New York City, and he meets a Jew. And he's been living this tremendous life of, of, of freedom and doing what he wants. And he meets a Jew and he gets, let's say he gets into a conversation. And the Jew starts saying, well, there's a religion and so on. And all of a sudden there's this tremendous battle. Should he become religious and give up his former life and so on? It could be that that is the major battle of this person's life. And if he conquers it and becomes from, even if he's not as big a from Yid as somebody who was born in the house of a tzaddik, he could become far greater in his status than the guy who was born in the house of a Rosh Hashiva. And he has a different task, you see. So therefore, any person you meet, you don't know what his assigned task is. And you don't know to what extent he is doing the assigned task. But it is very possible that the percentage or the amount that he corrects is far greater, of course, than the percentage that you do, even though you have a far greater task to do. Very important idea to understand. Now, therefore, that is what is meant when the Ramam says that that any man can be as great as Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't mean that you can be as great as Moshe Rabbeinu, which means that you will have his intellect, you will have his job of leadership, right? It doesn't mean that. Because of course you'll never have that kind of a position. But what it does mean is that if you achieve a greater percentage in your designated area, more than Moshe Rabbeinu in his designated area, you will be equal to or greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the way it comes down. And in Ulam Habo, the status depends on the amount that you did your job, whatever that job was. It doesn't depend on the task you were given. That is the Rabbeinu Shlodim's cheshben, his reckoning. Now, that is what the Vilna Goin, when the Vilna Goin says <coughs> that Ein Moinim Dap Melashois, when they get to the Yom Adin, they don't count the amount of blood you learn, they count the amount of hours you put in. Because, obviously the amount of blood you learn depends on your intellect, 
the, obviously the amount of pages in the Talmud that you learn depends on your intellect and so on. How intelligent you are, of course, and your memory, and how much you remember, and how much, what kind of Rebbe you had, and so on. <clears throat> they don't count the amount of blood you learned, the amount of pages you learned, in, in, or the amount of mitzvahs you did, or whatever. But they count the amount of hours you put in. So even if it takes you 10 hours to understand one idea that the Vilna Goen could understand in 3 minutes, you will be greater because you put in 10 hours and he put in 3 minutes. He's got to put in 10 hours of his kind of learning to equal you 10 hours of your kind of learning. That's the way it goes. Which of course is merely a corroboration of what I am saying. It's very similar to an army. When you look at an army, and that's what Kai Yisrael is, the army of God. Tzivoy's Kale, the army of God. An army has generals, it has corporals, it has privates, and so on. Every person has a different task. No two people have the same task in an army, but if everybody does the totality, or the, whatever they have to do, that is what they are judged on. To what extent did they do their job? Same idea. And it's the same idea in terms of all Klai Israel. Now, we find, however, but we, we do know that there are great neshamas, and there are less neshamas, even though, in terms of Oilem Abba, they will be equal, or the status of Oilem Abba doesn't have anything to do with the kind of assignment you are given. But, the kind of assignment you are given, of course, does mean that there are great neshamas and less neshamas, and therefore your assignments change, as the neshamas change for the different individuals. Now, these Jews, who are great neshamas, are a tremendous threat to the Sitra Akhra, the force of evil. Why? Because of the potential Tikkun. Obviously, if this great neshama is Masakin, then he corrects tremendous amounts of this universe, at least in a spiritual sense, right? And therefore, it is potentially devastating to the forces of evil, to the Sitra Akhra. The reverse side is also true, that if they fall, they can create awesome damage or kulkulam to the Bria, to the universe. And we have seen exactly where Esav, where I mentioned that Esav had, was equal to Yaakov in terms of his neshama. Therefore by Esav what we see is that Esav fell and we realize that he had a great neshama, he could have been massacred in tremendous areas like Yaakov Avinu was. But of course he didn't, instead he destroyed a great deal of the Bria and we had learned last week or the week before, that the, one of the results of Esav's chatoim, his sins, was the death of Avram, which we had covered before. Therefore, we see that great neshamas present a tremendous danger to the Sitra Akhra. They cause tremendous intimidation because of the potential taken. If they choose the right path, they can change tremendous amounts of the universe and spiritually reconstruct it. Therefore, the Sitra Akhra is, of course, in tremendous, uh, stands in tremendous awe or intimidation of these individuals. Now, what do we see? That in respect to Oilem Hazeb, not Oilem Habor, because souls or individuals are judged differently in Oilem Habor, but at least in respect to Oilem Hazeb, that there's a general situation of concealment of oneness of God, and these divide themselves into Hassan and Kilkul, which I had mentioned. And we see that they are great Nishamas. Those souls that can do great tikkunim, great corrections in the uh, situation of the concealment of God's presence, or those that can do great damages, they are referred to as great neshamas, and smaller neshamas, those that can do smaller tikkunim or kilkulim, they of course are referred to as smaller neshamas. Now, 
I also mentioned that they present an awesome threat to the Sitra Acha's reign, his ability to control the universe. Because if they do Masakin, of course, they correct a tremendous amount of the damage or deficiency in the spiritual universe. Also, what's important to know is that in terms of this world, these people who have great Nishamas tend to be very great men in terms of thinking. They become great thinkers in Torah and so on. They also can become great leaders, mashpiyam, they can influence tremendous amounts of people. Also, they tre- when they work and they choose the right path, they can become tremendous kedushim, holy people, in terms of their character traits, their meters, in terms of their dvekas, their closeness to God. In other words, when they get involved in righteousness, they get involved in an incredible way, and they, they achieve great achievements because they are great souls. And therefore, in the spiritual universe, there are great spiritual rectifications that occur as a result of what goes on here. Now, on the reverse, of course, these kind of individuals, if they don't follow the right path, okay, they tend to be very evil men. They go the opposite way. They become leaders in spreading evil, on the contrary. And instead of becoming holy men, as I said, they become very evil and they promote their own thinking in a very evil fashion. They become very atheistic and so on. They become what's called the uh, messenger of the Sitra Akhra, rather than the individual who fights the Sitra Akhra, the evil force. They become his very messenger, as we find by Esau. Esau in the beginning was supposed to fight the Sitra Akhra, and in the end, who does become the very messenger of the Sitra Akhra? Because you find that when the angel fought Yaakov, later on, the, the angel that he fought was Samuel, was actually the angel of death himself, who was Sarish Esav, who was the angel of Esav. So you see that people who are great and fall actually represent the Sitra Akhra if they do fall. This is the tremendous potential that they're involved with if they go one or the other ways. But when they do, when they do achieve greatness in Kedusha, in the right path, then they also can influence other Jews to Masakin also. In other words, they have a tremendous influence over other Jews. They become leaders in that sense. And they, become, they can make other people from. They write Sforum. Tremendous amount of Sforum. They have great innovations. Chedushim. Uh, Navalei. Sforum that they write where other people can read and, of course, become influenced. Also, they make great contributions. Even if it's not original in the sense that it's Chedushim, Navalei, but they can systematize vast amounts of material, like the Rambam who systematized the Talmud when he wrote the Mishnah Torah and so on. So therefore, they're involved with these great Nishamas, are involved with uh, contributions and tremendous innovations. In addition, they also serve as tremendous models. They become very great men, they become Rebbes, Rosh Hashivas, and so on. These are the kind of people uh, in these areas that emanate or come from great neshamas. Now, it doesn't mean that any Jew cannot involve himself in these areas and doesn't mean that he cannot succeed also in a great way in any of these areas, namely to serve as a model for other people, to influence other people, to write sforum or whatever. But when these neshamas who can massacre large areas of the universe, when they become involved in righteousness, tzitkas, 
that they do it in an awesome way. They really make tremendous contributions. But that's exactly what they're supposed to do. And like I said, there is no inequality because that is what their task is. Moshe Rabbeinu achieved greatness, not only beside his Avodah, but in terms of his potential he was able to achieve it because that's exactly what his task was, to achieve that greatness and therefore enable Klai Yisrael to receive the Torah. And it's true, of course, of all the other great individuals or great Neshamas that were able to successfully become righteous. Now, we begin to see that what the idea of great Neshamas and less Neshamas is. Now, when the Rabbani Shalom wants to bring down a great neshama, there is a difficulty that he incur, uh, that he encounters. Kaviyoho. What is that? We see that these neshamas that come down force tremendous uh, uh, prosecution or kitrugam by the sitra achra. Because I had mentioned that the sitra achra is tremendously intimidated these individuals who come down and therefore who could potentially do a tremendous amount of good for the universe. As a result, the Sitra Akhra is going to make tremendous attempts at prosecution because that is really his only weapon. In other words, he's going to try to say that mankind, if they are the ones who have to massacre the Bria, correct the universe, or Yisrael, and they took over the task of mankind, that they, they are not worthy, i.e. they didn't, through justice, for these potentially great and profound individuals to come down, they are not worthy for these potentially great and profound enlightenments, Uris, to occur. And that is exactly the way that he tries to get the Rabbani Shalom not to bring these Nishamas down. And the greater the Nishama, the greater is the Kitrugam, the pro- which means the prosecutory attempts. And the Sitrachor, of course, who is there, his service, of course, his task is to represent justice. He will use that in order to stop them from coming down. And therefore, of course, he invokes justice and says that Klai Yisrael is not worthy to have these neshamas because, of course, what he doesn't want is the possible tikkunim that these neshamas can do if they choose the righteous path. Now, when we talk about the shrashim of Ben Yosef and Ben David, then we can say that the Sitra Akhra goes insane with intimidation. He goes crazy. Why? Because they are the greatest Nishamas of all. Therefore, what they tempt him to do, of course, what they force him to do, is produce the greatest Kitrugim of all against them, to prosecute them to the full extent of the law. In other words, it's almost like getting the entire the United States DA's office in order to stop something from happening. What the Sitra Akhra does, of course, in order to stop the Shrashim of the Meshichan to come down, he will marshal all the din, all the judgments and justices that he can, and he will say that these do not deserve to come down because Klai Yisrael, the Jews, do, uh, do not deserve that these Neshamas should come down and therefore potentially be uh, be privy to such tremendous amount of iris or enlightenment. Now, unfortunately, din or judgment, justice, is usually with the Sitra Akhra. Because of the many chatoim of Klai Yisrael, and before Klai Yisrael, of course, the many sins or the chatoim of mankind. Therefore, this presents a tremendous difficulty to the Rabbani Shalom. 
kavyochol in in a manner of speaking, what to do? Because the revolution wants to maintain judgment or justice, din, because that is the only thing uh, that will be uh, bring a tikkun of nomadic sufa, which I had mentioned previously, and. He also wants to bring these shrushim down to the world in order to make sure that the world does have a tikkun in this way. So therefore, we can ask, what then does the Rebbe do? He wants to bring these shrushim down of the Meshichan, but the Sitra Akhra is tremendously involved in prosecuting Klai Yisrael and saying that they don't deserve this, because of course these individuals that come down are tremendous threats to the Sitra Akhra if they choose the righteous path and therefore great tikkunim will come out of that if they do that. Now, therefore what happens? The Rabbani Shalom therefore has one of three alternatives or basically there are three kinds of alternatives that the Rabbani Shalom seems that he can do. One, he can decide that therefore these shrushim cannot come down. Why? Because mankind or if they, uh, originally they were the Masakin or Klai Yisrael that they truly are unworthy because of justice they don't deserve that these potentially profound and extensive enlightenments should occur through these Shrosham of the Mishikhan because Klai Yisrael has done so many avarice so many sins therefore they should not enjoy this kind of closeness to the Rabbani Shalom that would be brought about by having these kind of great Nishamas come down. That's one kind of possibility. Another alternative that the Rav is that he will bring the Sherish down. But, in order to appease justice, which the Sitra Akra of course is claiming, that they don't deserve it, then what he will do is he will increase the power or the control that the Sitra Akra has over this individual more than the other side of the Eitzatoyot. Therefore, that will appease the Sitra Akhor because then the possibility of the downfall of this particular Sherish and therefore will produce tremendous Kilkulum, which is exactly what the Sitra Akhor wants, is far more uh, possible. The potential is much greater that he can ensnare this individual because he has been given control in a greater sense of this individual <coughs> than the Sad Hatoy, the good side. So therefore, <clears throat> this manner is appeasing the Sitrachor and he feels that it's worth the risk to bring this, to allow this Neshama to come down even though if he becomes righteous tremendous amount of Jews may do tshuva tremendous amount of ideas may come down and tremendous amount of tikkunim will be accomplished it's worth it because he has a greater hand at tipping the scales therefore he says, okay, bring them down because if he can succeed in turning away this individual who happens to be a Sherish of the Mishikhan, then what he can do is he can benefit by the Kilkulam that this individual will do. Therefore, he will allow this to happen. That is the second alternative that the Rabbanu can do in terms of contending with Din, justice, or bringing these Shrashim down to the world. There is a third alternative which the Rabbanu can do, and that is that he can conceal from the Sitra Akhra the entire idea or event of bringing down the Sherish. In other words, what the Rabbi Yishkin can do is bring down the Sherish and the Sitra Akhra won't know anything about it. Therefore, obviously, if the Sitra Akhra knows nothing about it, there is no Kitra. There is no prosecutory attempt 
by anybody to stop this neshama coming down. Now, there are two difficulties, however, in this third alternative that you may ask. First of all, what do you mean the Sitra Akhra doesn't know? We thought that he knows everything. And the answer to that is that the Sitra does not know everything that is going on in this universe. In fact, there are many things that he is totally unaware of. In other words, he only knows what the Rabbani Shalom wants him to know, no more and no less. This is one idea which is very important to know. That there is limitations in his knowledge of what he knows what is going on and what is not going on. The second difficulty that you may ask is, wait a minute, that does make sense. How can the Rabbani Shalom go against the individuals that he appointed in order to make sure justice is fulfilled? The Rabbani Shalom wants justice to be fulfilled. Therefore, he appointed the Sitra Akhra to make sure that he will be the guardian of justice. So what we're saying now is that if the Jews truly do not deserve that the Shrashim should come down, so instead he actually binds the hands of his own prosecutor. He appointed the prosecutor in order to enable people to have Oilam Habor because God created evil that man should reject evil and therefore get ulam habo because if there's nothing to reject then obviously there's no ulam habo to get because there's no task that a man could do there's nothing to reject or correct therefore he created the Yitzhahara in order to tempt man and therefore what Rabbanishan wants is that man will reject that Yitzhahara now if that's the case if the Rabbanishan ties the hands of the Sitra Akhra by concealing from him what he himself is doing even though the Jews don't deserve it so then what's he accomplishing? Justice will not be served therefore there will be no tikkun there will be no correction of the nam Sufa, that bread of shame that means people will be getting something for nothing they will be getting a soul which is capable of producing tremendous enlightenments when they don't really deserve it therefore even if they become from they will be becoming from through chesed, not because they deserved it. The task is easier because the Rebbeim is allowing the Shema to come down, which can produce tremendous enlightenment. Therefore, God is undoing His own namdik sufa by tying the hands of the Sitra Achor. So you may ask, how does He do this? And the answer to that is that, if you recall, there is an attribute called Hanhogasa Yichud. That is, that God acts toward mankind when He wants to make sure that the Jews will get ilm habo, even if they are not worthy at the present time. Which means that there is a third method of getting ilm habo, and that is surin. That even if the Jews are not living up to their responsibility, God will make them live up to their responsibility, and therefore He will put them through surin or golas, and as a result of that, they will be worthy to have Oilam Habo because they really lived up to it. But it's a backup system. This system, as I mentioned previously, is called Hanhogas Hayichud. Therefore, what the Rabbi Shalom does is he makes sure that even though now Klai Yisrael is not worthy of having these particular neshamas come down, therefore they're not worthy of the potential enlightenment that these neshamas can bring, he will make sure that they are worthy through din later on, even though they're not worthy now, by making sure that they go through whatever is soon, whatever goals is necessary, that they will have deserved the fact that the Shroshim came down previously. 
Therefore, judgment or justice will be ultimately satisfying and there will be a tikkun of Namnik Sufa. Therefore, what he does is that he doesn't want to tell the Sitra Akhra that suspend judgment and I want to do what I want to do because the job of the Sitra Akhra is as much as possible to ferret out all Averas and to make sure that there's retribution. So what he does instead, is instead of consulting with the Sitra Akhra and telling him what he wants the Sitra Akhra to do and that is stop prosecuting because God wants to do what he wants to do he doesn't even inform the Sitra Akhra and therefore even though now they are not worthy of these Nishamas coming down for the potential enlightenment that these Nishamas can bring however later on the Rabbanishim will put them through that kind of task or that kind of situation where they will be worthy Therefore, that is the idea of Anhogas HaYichod, which is a very fundamental and very important concept to understand. Now, as a result of this, the Rebbe Hashem has this third alternative way that he can conceal from the Sitra Akhra the fact that he's bringing down the Sherish, and therefore no Kitrik occurs. And later on, he will make sure that Christ will, will live up to that idea, to that Chesed, which the Rebbe Hashem did at this point in time. And just as an aside, that is why it says that the Rabbanu Shalom is medagdek with tzaddikim kechut hasayra, that he is very strict with them, like the threat, like the breadth of a hair. Why? It sounds as if he's unfair. Why should he be so severe and so strict with tzaddikim and other people he's more lenient to? And the answer to that is that the original plan of creation was that man should be strictly dealt with that if he did good he would be paid good if he did bad he would be paid evil therefore if the Rabbanu has to suspend that kind of judgment and bring Rahmanus or mercy then what the Rabbanu is really doing against what he originally intended because the only way you can misak and namlik sufa of course is by strictly adhering to din so therefore those people who need a suspension of din and they need Rahmim Therefore, the Rabbanu Shalom would do it to them because if he doesn't do it to them, they won't even exist in order to go through any trials at all in order to get in my ball. But Sadiqim, they are doing their job. Therefore, the God acts to them the way his original intention was in creation that whatever they get, they have to earn, and therefore, they will have the pleasure of knowing that they have everything they got because of their earning, they don't have anything because of Rahmanas or Chesed. They earned it, therefore they have the greatest tikkun of Namnik Sufa. And in fact, if you ask a tzaddik, tzaddikim themselves don't want to be given something for free. They want God to be medagdik with them, like the here's a here's breath, because they want to feel that whatever they have, they've earned. So therefore, we see that the Rabbanu acts the way he originally intended to act in the beginning of creation through Midas Adin severely with Tzaddikim because they've proven that they can beat Tzaddikim and they themselves would want God to act that way however, most of Christ will of course the Rabbanu does not act that way because if he did then as soon as they did a Chet then he would destroy them so therefore he incorporates mercy <coughs> with the idea of justice and enables them to keep going and therefore to earn Ilm Habol later on. And this is the entire idea of Hanhoga Sayyichud, where there is a suspension of, just, uh, of justice 
at the present time but later on of course they will of course deserve what they have to get through justice but the fact that they only deserve it later on is not the same as if they deserved it right now because there is some kind of suspension of justice by saying that I'll give you something even though, even though you don't deserve it now, you'll deserve it later on that itself is a chesed therefore Yisrael, or those people who have to come onto that midah of God where do not have the same kind of pleasure and their reward as people who don't have to come on to the attribute of those people who have the attribute of which is Sadiqim enjoy the reward more but as I said the Rabbani Shalom incorporates which is the backup system so that people can exist in the first place and earn reward that's why God is lenient with these individuals. Now, so the question is, how does the Rabbani Shalom conceal it from the Sitra What is the path that God takes, which whereby the Sitra is not aware of what's happening? In other words, we have to understand the mechanism of concealment from the Sitra in the third alternative. There are basically three ways, among other ways, but I'd like to consider three very important ways of how God conceals from the Sitra Akhra when he wants to bring down the Nishamas especially of the Mashiachan, those Shrashim. Now, the first way is that one would expect, or the Sitra Akhra certainly expects, that the Shrashim of the Mashiachan, which involves rulership, leadership, and kingship, he would expect that these individuals are born in great lineage. In other words, that the these individuals, when they come down, that their father and mother are either great tzaddikim, they descend from priests, from great lineage, they have great genealogy. This is what he would expect. He doesn't expect these neshamas to come out of gerim, proselytes, aniyim, poor people, almonas, women who are widows and, 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 and therefore broken families. He doesn't expect the Shroshim of the Mashiachim to come out of families that have basically no lineage. Therefore, one of the ways the Mashiachim conceals from him is by bringing the Shroshim through individuals who have no lineage. So therefore it comes out that Gerim, peasants and Almonus give birth to the Mashiachim or the Shroshim. That is one way that God conceals the entrance of these Shroshim into the universe. The second way that the Rabbani Shalom conceals is that one would expect that these Shrashim when they come down and they are born that there is great holiness associated with their birth <clears throat> in other words that the mother and father are righteous people that the, the wife, the mother went to the mikvah that the mother and father are engaging in a real marital relationship and not illicit relationship and so on that there is a Kedusha surrounding the birth Right, And also one would expect that there is a holiness surrounding the development and growth of this particular individual who is a shirish of one of the Mashiachim. Instead, one would not expect that what's involved between the mother and father of this particular shirish of one of the Mashiachim is that what's not involved is not that there is sin, that there is illicit relationships between the two that the mother did not go to the mikvah, that neither of these people are righteous people, and so on. One would not expect this to happen. And therefore, that is exactly what happens. Now, what the Rabbani Shalom does 
is he allows the shirish of the Mashiachan to enter situations. In other words, he is born in situations which are surrounded by chatoim, sins. Whether they are imaginary because no free will is involved, or whether they are, uh, because, or whether they are real because free will is involved, which I'll explain later. But in any case, what the Rebbe does is he allows the Shroshim, in order to conceal from the Sitra Akra, to enter parents who are engaging in illicit relationships, or the, the Kedusha that you'd expect that would surround this individual's birth, you'd expect it to be very great, that there, not only is there no Kedusha, but there is actually Chatoim, or sins, involved. And therefore people, the society around them, thinks that these mother and father really engaged in chatoim, in illicit relationships. That is the second way that the shroshim can descend and conceal this from the Sitra Akron. There's another way that there is such a time called an Esorol Yaakov. What does that mean? That there is times when Midas Hadin rules, that the attribute of justice reigns and therefore God listens to the prosecutions of the Sitra Akra and he punishes the Jews for what they did. That is an Esara. Now, the Sitra Akra being no fool immediately sees when there's an Esara, when Midas Adin is shaded, when God is, has assumed the guise of a judge and is severely judging Christ from. Therefore, he immediately begins a very important task. He is busy schlepping Eden up to the Rebbeinu and saying, You see that man? Punish him because he did this. You see that man? Punish him because he did that and so on. He is busy grabbing Jews and prosecuting them that they should be punished for the sins that they did. Because now is the time to do it. Because now is an Esorli Yaakov. Now the Rebbeinu is in his attribute of justice. He is the supreme judge. So therefore the Sitra Akhra, of course, never wasting an opportune moment, is busy being makatrig or prosecuting Klai Yisrael and prosecuting them and punishing them at the same time. Therefore, what the Rabbanu does is that he slips in the Shirish into Klai Yisrael at that time because the Sitrachra is so busy prosecuting other areas of Jews and prosecuting them of the sins they did that all of a sudden a neshama can just slip into Klai Yisrael a great neshama like the Sherish of the Mishikhan without the Sitra Akhra knowing it at all that's a third way in other words the Sitra Akhra overlooks the Sherish coming down in other words God diverts the attention of the Sitra Akhra by, by making this Sorol Yaakov therefore the Sitra Akhra is now involved in prosecutions and he doesn't see what's coming down and this is really one of the hidden blessings in the East Surah, in, in, ter in, in terms of the difficult times that happens to Jews, is that many times great Shrushim come down in order, and in order that they shouldn't be seen, therefore the Sitra is busy prosecuting Kleinsville because he realizes that that is when God lends his ear to whatever the Sitra claims. Now, these are the three ways that if God chooses the last method, alternative, is the way he hides from the Sitra Akra and therefore is able to bring down a Shurish of the Mishikhim. Now, the truth is that, so he knows these are the three general ways of possibilities. The first is that he doesn't bring it down. The second is that he tips the scales and the balance of the Sitra Akra, that the Sitra Akra has more control over the individual. 
and therefore the Sitrach is willing to wi- is willing to risk the the Shomer coming down, so he can grab the products of Kilkul if he can somehow convince this individual to become a Rosha. And the third method, of course, is that the Sitrach is busy prosecuting. And, uh, or rather, the third method, uh, I should say, is that the Rabbani Shem conceals from the Sitra Achor. And in that third method itself, there are three ways that the Rabbani Shem actually conceals from the Sitra Achor. Now, I'm not going to treat the, the subject of the structure, the components of the Sitra Achor, the entire division called the side of evil. I'm not going to go into the systems or the entire operation. I'm not going into the way the Sitra Achor relates to the Sitra Tikidusha, which is a side of holiness, that entire divisions, because there are two major divisions, the side of holiness, the Sitra Kedusha, and the Sitra Akhra, which means the other side, which means the forces of evil that try to promote evil and get men to sin. I'm not going into these areas, therefore I'm going to leave unanswered many specific details. They will remain unanswered, until at that time when I'll make a, a shear or give a presentation on that particular area. Therefore, uh, I'm going to leave you know a lot of different areas of the Sitra Akra, and I'm going to proceed in going further to understand which way does the Rabbani Shalom choose. Now, the Rabbani Shalom chooses number two and number three. In other words, because he really wants to bring down the Shroshim for the benefit of the Bria and Klai Yisrael, okay, therefore he's not going to abstain from bringing them down. He's going to bring them down. Therefore, either he's going to employ method number two, where he will give the Sitra Akhra greater control over the Sherest. In other words, by, he will increase the odds of the downfall of this particular Sherest, thereby increasing the odds of this individual producing Kilkul for the Sitra Akhra's own benefit. That's one way. And he'll also engage himself in number three. And it would seem that number three is the major way that he engages in. And therefore, he will conceal from the Sitra Akhra the descent of this Shirish into the Bria. Okay? And this is basically the major way that the Rabbani Shalom deals with bringing down a great Nishama. Now, now that we know that, now that we know the basic theoretical framework, in other words, the structure of those ideas, how the Rabbanishim brings down a great neshama, especially a shirish of the Meshichim. In other words, now that we understand the principles of what happens, we can now understand the events or those conditions which happen in which the Meshichim are born, and these of course are determined by those principles. So therefore what I'd like to do is to examine in history some of the actual events when Shrushim came down, Okay, and we will see exactly how they were able to come down. And this principle is one of the greatest Swedish Hatira in terms of why many things happen the way they do, especially when you see great souls coming down in very abnormal circumstances or situations. Now, let us now begin to go into the first situation, and that is the situation of Lot. The idea of Lot and his daughters. And I'll continue that next week.